Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week overall. And I thought I'd let you know that um, with this uh, segment uh, to the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea by Michael Schumacher, this is going to this uh, segment is going to be uh, the epilogue. You know, prologue is the beginning, and the epilogue is the ending to a story. So we have now reached the end of the road to Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. It's been an amazing journey, to say the least, uh, to have learned about not just a ship's history, but how a ship evolved in her history. You know. None of us as humans can live forever. Ships ships can only be around but for so long. But even when a ship retires, her legacy can still live on. Even when a ship meets a tragic fate, she still shouldn't be forgotten. After all, the Bradley had an left... In my opinion, I, I truly believe the Bradley did leave a, a great legacy to the people of Rogers City. On the other hand, um, I am saddened by the fact that 33 men lost their lives. Do I wish that more men could have been saved on the night of November 18, 1958? Yes. I believe it's fair to say all of us would have wished for a better outcome. Is it a miracle that two men survived? Yes. Has it been unfortunate to have learned that those two men, for a good period of time, um, struggled in the aftermath of this um, tragic ordeal? Yes, I do believe it's unfortunate that uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming saw their marriages come apart because of this um, disaster. I think it's unfortunate that there were people who, not all of Rogers City, but don't know what the number per percentage is, but I do think it's unfortunate that there were people in Rogers City who turned their backs on these two men. It was almost, it's like Frank Mays had said, you know, is it, he said something like, you know, is it even worth my living still? Well, we're even going to, we're going to even learn in this uh, final episode to the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley about Frank Mays and his overall life. Many of you all will be surprised to know just how old he lived to be. And many of you all will be surprised to learn that he took part in something very, very special that that um, has kept the Bradleys, um, the lost uh, Bradleys crewmen's uh, spirit and their spirit alive. And not just for these uh, deceased crewmen, but for the town of Rogers City as a whole. So if I tell any more information, then many of you all will say, uh, Kirk, what's the point in even discussing the epilogue? to the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. Well, let's uh, begin with our first uh, lead-off uh, question to this um, final uh, segment of Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. In the years after the Bradley sinking, what Great Lakes shipwreck in the 1970s went on to become one of the biggest mysteries? What do I mean by mystery here, folks? What I'm referring to is how this uh, ship uh, sank. Did this ship sink in Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Lake Huron, 
Lake Erie, or Lake Ontario. Interesting that I mentioned all five great lakes there. But then again, um, you know, there are five bodies of uh, water that make up the Great Lakes. But which do you all, which, uh, which one of the Great Lakes do you all think that this um, ship um, being the most, um, one of the more uh, famous of shipwrecks uh, that occurred in November, being the deadliest month for uh, Great Lakes uh, shipwrecks to take place, does anybody want to take a guess at the uh, at the name of the ship as well as the lake in which the ship sank? The name of the ship is the Edmund Fitzgerald, and she um, went down on the night of uh, November tenth, nineteen seventy five. Hard to believe that uh, in eight days from now we'll be uh, commemorating the forty sixth anniversary of the sinking of the Fitzgerald. So. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a 729-foot iron ore carrier, and she was loaded with slightly over 26,000 tons of cargo. And we're not talking one of these vessels that comes out of a freight container station. She was loaded with 20, just over 26,000 tons of taconite iron ore pellets. Uh, that to me would be a better description than just say cargo, because cargo can mean anything. Twenty-six, just over twenty-six thousand tons of uh, iron ore uh, pellets, taconite iron ore pellets. That's a lot of um, pellets, to say the least. But is it fair to say that maybe the Fitzgerald was exceeding her um, threshold with regards to just how much her ship was designed? Um, in terms of overall design with transporting um, cargo being taconite iron ore pellets? Perhaps so. The Fitzgerald sadly fell victim to a storm on the night of November 10th, 1975. You know, is it fair to say that in 1975 that technology had become a little bit more sophisticated or somewhat more advanced compared to what the Bradley had um, at its time of, um, at it had during its heyday and uh, leading up to when she um, went down in November of 58, being 17 years earlier. Uh, yes, I would say that there probably was to an extent some form of um, more sophisticated uh, technological advances within the 17 year time frame, but despite modern equipment of the time, being, or I rather should say accessories, the Fitzgerald went out of sight. She did not, she, wasn't a question of her not wanting to send a distress signal. She simply was unable to send out a distress signal because of how quick she fell off the radar. Another ship had been in contact with her um, pretty much throughout the entire uh, voyage that would have led to the final destination spot that the Fitzgerald was going. Many of you probably Remember uh, when we discussed about the wreck, about the mighty Fitz, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, being by none other than Mr. Michael Schumacher, uh, we learned that her um, her partnership, I would say partnership, but the ship uh, traveling uh, from a nearby distance was the Arthur Anderson, and that ship is still in existence today, folks, but um, the late uh, Bernie Cooper, who was captain of the Arthur Anderson um he had he um, had testified to the board of inquiry and had mentioned in other um, interviews before he passed away uh, 
close to 30 years ago, he said that uh, Captain Ernest McSorley's final, um, his final uh, response over the um, radio, uh, Ernest McSorley was captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald. One of McSorley's final, final comments was that um, we were holding our ground, or rather we are holding our ground despite having taken on a lot of water. And shortly after that, Fitzgerald went out of sight. Not only had this 729-foot uh, iron ore carrier gone out of sight, but 29 men lost their lives. Prior to the Fitzgerald sinking, the, uh, at the time, the Carl D. Bradley sinking was the most expensive in Great Lakes history, around $8 million. But by the time the Fitzgerald goes down 17 years later, she becomes the um, most expensive uh, loss along the Great along Great Lakes waters, and how ironic that it was in 1957 that the Fitzgerald was um, being built. Uh, she was built by um, well, uh, the company that sponsored her rather was Northwest Mutual Life Insurance Company, and the CEO of that of the company at the time was none other than Mr. Edmund Fitzgerald, for whom the ship is named after. So the Edmund Fitzgerald made its uh, maiden voyage along Great Lakes waters in 1958. Here, we're trading places here, folks. The Carl D. Bradley was the largest for a long period of time to um, navigate Great Lakes waters. And now the Fitzgerald has taken over. The Fitzgerald, to some, was referred to as the Titanic of the Great Lakes. People would be... Um, traveling over a bridge or and if they saw the Fitzgerald go by it was safe enough for them to pull over to the side of the road to get out of their car and watch this 729 foot freighter cross along about one of the Great Lakes waters and for those of you who'd like to know uh, real quick which which uh, major um, city that the Fitzgerald came into frequently it was uh, Toledo Ohio she would be referred to as the Toledo Express because of the number of voyages she made into Toledo, uh, dropping off um, taconite iron ore pellets. So, you know, here the, the Fitzgerald sinks, and the Fitzgerald's getting all this attention. And now all of a sudden the Fitzgerald has become the big um, rage into... Um, people wanting to know more about Great Lakes shipwrecks. So, come 1976, Canadian songwriter Gordon Lightfoot releases a number one hit song titled The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which paid tribute to the largest Great Lakes vessel that had perished on Lake Superior. But his song alone helped spark new interest in Great Lakes shipwrecks, ranging from education to dive exploration expeditions. So, this is all good, but for many of the um, Carl Bradley uh, victims, or rather the victims' families, they feel as though the Fitzgerald has taken over to where they have now become largely forgotten. And despite Rogers City's people holding yearly events honoring the deceased Bradley and Cedarville crewmen, remember uh, the wreck of the uh, Cedarville that we discussed uh, the last time I was on the air? I should point out here real quick with the Cedarville, this is something I didn't mention. I know I had mentioned that um, 
you know, the recklessness behind Captain Martin Jopic's uh, decisions. I read, uh, I did some research online the other night and found out that Martin Jopic had his license suspended for a year, but he decided after the uh, Board of Inquiry had determined that it would be best to have his license uh, suspended, Jopic himself um, gave up um, navigating Great Lakes waters. So he never commanded another ship again. I think it's probably best that he didn't because of just how reckless his decision was to um, knowing that his boat, knowing that a ship was already in a bad state of affair, but he tried to um, risk it all by um, navigating the ship to, um, to the shoreline with the hopes that it would still be salvageable only for it to uh, list and um, <laughs> not even get too uh, close proximity of the shoreline itself, but the ship sank and um, it sank. And yes, thank goodness there were survivors, but the, the worst expense of it all was that nine of the 10 victims came from Rogers City. So that's why the Cedarville is, um, the Cedarville victims are also honored and remembered by uh, Rogers City's uh, residents. So despite Rogers City's people holding yearly events Honoring the deceased Bradley and Cedarville crewmen, did maritime historians and divers know that the Bradley herself was in fact accessible to explore, unlike the Edmund Fitzgerald, whom laid 530 feet below Lake Superior surface? Uh, the answer is yes, especially considering the presence of some uh, new sophisticated equipment that um, is still in use today, but it's called... This type of equipment is called rebreathers. Uh, rebreathers are used for scuba diving purposes that would allow divers to explore lost shipwrecks at greater depths that had never been uh, previously uh, thought of before. You know, the Bradley, I mean, the Fitzgerald lies uh, 530 feet below Lake Superior's surface. We will find out here shortly just how far below the Bradley is, but I can tell you that the Bradley is not in the same uh, depth category like the Fitzgerald is. Otherwise, if the Bradley was, I'm not saying that it would have been possible, that it wouldn't have been possible to have gone down there and explored the ship, but it all comes down to having the right equipment. So we're, what we're going to be finding out now, folks, is what it's going to take to actually get people to go down to the actual gravesite of the Bradley. But we've got to learn about some people first uh, who are going to help um, finance this, not just finance a project, but they could be financing multiple projects over time. Um, who is Jim Clary? Well, it turns out that he is a, he, that Mr. Clary himself is a Marine artist whom is known for his paintings of Great Lakes ships and shipwrecks. He has had a deep interest in the Bradley shipwreck, dating back to the year the ship went down, being in uh, November of 1958. Um, Jim, had Jim Clary ever met uh, Frank Mays before, folks? Yes, he had. He first met uh, Frank Mays by telephone in 1975, same year the Fitzgerald goes down. But going forward, uh, Mr. Clary would have nothing but the utmost respect for Frank Mays. 
Why shouldn't you, as a person, have the utmost respect for Frank Mays? And we're going to learn more about him as this podcast goes along. But Frank Mays has obviously had a lot of twists and turns in his life. But he's still going on with life, living to the fullest extent there is possible. He is thankful to be alive. He does not take life for granted. He's basically living his life to the fullest to ensure that all of his other fellow comrades, that their spirit and that, and that, and that for whom they represented as not just individuals, but for the greater Rogers City community are not forgotten. Because he knows that all of those deceased crewmen would have given anything in the world to be alive and also be able to go on with life like Frank Mays himself has had. And remember, Elmer Fleming died back in 1969. So, you know, Frank Mays is honoring Elmer Fleming, the other um, survivor of the uh, Bradley sinking. So for Jim Cleary, what do you think is his ultimate objective? Well, there's more than one objective, but one of them has to do with wanting to do a series of paintings depicting the Bradley wreckage. But for the paintings themselves, but for the paintings themselves to become accurate, there also has to be actual visitors, a.k.a. divers to the wreckage site. You know, it's one thing to paint a picture of a ship, but if a ship has met a tragic fate, wouldn't you want to be able to recapture what you think might have been the ship's final moments before it, before it, um, before it sunk, before it went down um, to where there was no uh, going back. Even um, a, even to painting a picture of a ship in her final moments tells a story unto itself. Jim Clary turns to people like Josh Barnes, who is the former mayor of Charlevoix, who has an interest in the Bradley. He also turns to a fellow man by the name of Fred Shannon, who is a Michigan businessman and explorer whom arranged, whom arranged an expedition to the Edmund Fitzgerald in 1994. Now, as for Frank Mays, is he still living in uh, Rogers City? Or has he relocated to another state? He's uh, relocated to another state. He's uh, living in Florida, and he has remarried. And he's very enthusiastic about the potential search dive to the Carl D. Bradley. Remember, folks, what has Frank Mays been trying to prove all along to people? That the Bradley split apart in two. She split. Frank Mays testified to the Board of Inquiry that he literally witnessed the Bradley split apart in two pieces above right on Lake Michigan's surface, and he is also firmly convinced that the Bradley went down in two pieces. But he's got to see for, but he hopes to be able to see for himself with the new technology there is now to actually prove once and for all that the Bradley did sink in two versus going down in one piece. So August 15th, 1995, Fred Shannon, Jim Clary, and Frank Mays descend to the depths of Lake Michigan's waters via um, the Delta, um, a mini-sub. What findings do you think will yield out of all this? 
Well, Fred Shannon's dives, whereas, well, let me start back here. You know, Fred Shannon uh, coordinated a dive to the Edmund Fitzgerald a year before, and his dives to the Fitzgerald had been good because of excellent visibility underground. The Bradley has proven opposite. And why is that, folks? Well, there could be a number of reasons, but the reason why this um, dive to the Bradley, the first um, attempt, wasn't good had to do with uh, poor visibility, but this poor visibility was brought on from um, silt stirred up by a current as well as remnants of a storm. So I'm sure some of you all would be thinking to yourselves, well, gee, this must have been a waste of money, or, you know, if you didn't, if the weather didn't cooperate, then it's fair to say nothing came out of it. Well, let's hold our horses here. Something did come out of it. The mission did get some um, good results. Fred Shannon, Jim Clary, and Frank Mays were able to get an up-close view of the Bradley stern. Of course, remember, folks, the stern is the back of a ship. Frank Mays saw up close the following. What do you think he saw up close? He saw the following on the Bradley starboard side of the stern section. He saw the following in terms of the following wordage. Carl D. Bradley. So he actually saw for himself on the back of, of the ship the words still made out, the Carl D. Bradley. So, hey, he knows that that's the ship. He now has seen this ship. This is the first time he has seen the ship since the night she went down 37 years earlier. I can only imagine what kind of chills must have been running through his mind, knowing that 15 men still remain, still remain to this day unaccounted for. It's it's sad. I mean, it's 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 maybe it'd be exciting on one hand to think, okay, we have made some progress, but we're also we're down here paying respects at the same time to those who didn't come up alive or those who simply just perished. The nineteen ninety five expedition uh, only lasted twenty five minutes underwater, and. Here we are still left with this uh, million-dollar question over whether or not the Bradley herself had split in two pieces. However, despite this expedition only lasting 25 minutes underwater, is uh, Fred Shannon giving up? Is Robert Clary giving up? What about Frank Mays? Are, are these three men giving up and throwing in the towel? No. They want, to, um, they want to do another expedition, but it's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight. So the next question here is, will another trip to the Bradley take place not long, or not long after the 1995 expedition? Yes. Come May of 1997, just two years later, the three men go about using what's called an ROV. What is an ROV, folks? Remotely Operated Vehicle. In other words, a remotely operated vehicle is going to go down to the depths of Lake Michigan and provide information to the people above who are coordinating this mission. And this remotely operated vehicle will be able to provide them with solid evidence as to whether or not the Bradley did, in fact, 
split apart in two or whether she went down in one. I believe it's fair to say that Jim Clary and Fred Shannon are taking Frank Mays's words at face value. I don't think I don't I have no doubts for one second that they do agree with Frank Mays that the ship probably did split in two, but they've got to have physical proof. So this is where the remotely operated vehicle will come into play. This uh, vehicle will also have more mobility to move around, unlike the Delta, being the mini-sub. So the, the 1997 expedition, it turns out that this expedition yielded major findings. In other words, it's fair to say that this expedition lasted far longer than 25 minutes from the one two years before. So what kind of uh, findings did the 1997 expedition yield? Well, I, I guess it's fair to say the big piece was that um, it helped that this expedition resolved the long debate. And what was that long debate? Over whether or not uh, the ship went down in one, in one piece intact or it split apart in two. So we um, know that, that the uh, ship did in fact go down in um, two pieces per the ROV's footage. The bow and the stern sections were both upright, but leaning to the ship's left side. The, the bow and the stern are separated roughly by 90 feet. That's not that far apart, folks, in terms of a distance uh, per um, per section. But what I do know is that uh, one of the uh, pictures that uh, one of the artistical uh, pictures from this uh, book of Schumacher's, it shows the ship uh, lined up perfectly. So if the ship is lined up perfectly, to me, it would almost appear as though the ship went down as one. But it's like that old saying goes, looks can be deceiving, even with the with the with the wreckage of a ship. So, despite looking close to being lined up perfectly, the ROV footage uh, revealed that the bow's back, meaning the front, I mean, the bow is the front of the ship, but the bow's back most likely hit Lake Michigan's floor first as it was buried with excessive amounts of mud. The stern was found to be missing its hatch covers. And remember what the hatch covers are, folks? The hatch covers are the covers that are used for uh, securing the uh, cargo hold of a ship. I'll confirm that again here real quick. You know, there's a lot of unique uh, terminology when it comes to uh, maritime history, but I think that's uh, not a bad thing at all because <laughs> there's more than just being a wheelsman. There's more to just the bow, the stern, but yes, the hatches, remember, are the openings in the ship's spar deck through which the cargo is loaded. So, so yes, um, they found um, that the stern was found to be missing its hatch covers, which most likely were ripped apart during the sinking. But the beginning... So, but beginning so, when the bow and the stern s separated... Scattered debris, the ROV uh, found scattered debris 
found all around the wreckage site. It's probably fair to say that that scattered debris um, pertained to the um, limestone that was being uh, transported on the Fitzgerald's on, on the um, Bradley's final voyage. What did the ROV not find? And maybe that was maybe it was a good thing that the ROV that perhaps the ROV didn't find this. The, the ROV found no skeletal remains of the 15 men unaccounted for. You know, I do know that um, when Fred Shannon, um, when I read the book about the Mighty Fitz, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that Fred Shannon's team did discover a couple of skeletons when they went down to the Fitzgerald. Lake Superior remains cold pretty much year-round, and because Lake Superior is so cold, not just at the top of the surface, but below, uh, those freezing temperatures pretty much uh, preserve skeletal bodies. They preserve them even after um, a, a person's been gone for, say, well over 20 years. Lake Michigan, on the other hand, it's probably fair to say that the uh, 15 men unaccounted for um, their bodies had probably already well decomposed, given that, you know, we are looking at a 37-year differential from the time the ship went down till now this um, um, voyage to the, um, to the depths of where the Bradley um, lies in rest. For Frank Mays, um, I guess you could say on one hand this could be seen as a sweet victory, but it's not so much a victory over, oh, I told you so, I was right all along. But Frank Mays is seeing the Bradley wreckage brought tremendous closure, given that his life had been one of many twists and turns since November 18, 1958. He finally could prove once and for all that the Bradley did in fact split in two, not only on Lake Michigan's surface, but to seeing the ship rest in two pieces of Lake Michigan's uh, bottom floor. So I can't imagine being in Frank Mays' shoes and, you know, there is a sense of relief knowing that you had been right all along, but also knowing that this is where the Bradley lies in state, even after all these years. This is where 15 men, whom were never accounted for, met their final fate. Is the Bradley's final resting spot below Lake Michigan's surface at more than 350 feet of water? Yes. Where the shipwreck herself lies at the very bottom, visibility itself is bad. How so? Well, largely in part because the water alone is dark, which would make any attempt on the part of an individual or a group of individuals as something beyond foolish which could result in death. Even for the most experienced of um, scuba divers who would take part in these, in these kinds of... Um, what do you call it, um, search locations, um, what do you call it, Great Lakes, if they are very well versed and knowledgeable with Great Lakes shipwrecks, even the most advanced of um, advanced people who may have the um, skills to do something that others would say is very unheard of to do, many of them would think twice before doing it because there's no guarantee that they might come back up to the surface alive. There's some things that aren't worth risking. 
and the Carl D. Bradley is a grave site for the 15 men whose bodies were never found. So basically, Fred Shannon, Jim Clary, and Frank Mays all agreed that nothing, that really nothing else should be brought up that doesn't have to be brought up. But if they but if anything wanted to be brought up, they were, there would also there would have to be some special requirements, and we'll find that out here in a momentarily. We forward now to the year two thousand seven. So you know here in nineteen ninety seven, the the remotely operated vehicle pr had um, proven and had uh, supported what Frank Mays had been saying all along, that, you know, the Bradley did split apart in two on Lake Michigan's surface as well as at the bottom of the lake. So we forward 10 years later to August of 2007. But prior to August of 2007, did another famous Great Lakes vessel have its ship bell removed, only to get replaced with a, re with a replica which listed the crewman's names from her final trip. Well, that that did happen, and it was none other than for the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald. The Edmund Fitzgerald had this unique circumstance take place, but the mission itself, even for the Fitzgerald, also re received unanimous support from all relatives of the 29 lost crewmen. So we have to remember, folks, we can't just go down to a ship and um, remove its bell. Um because the bell, believe it or not, a ship's bell is something very sacred. You know, think about it. A bell is a form of communication. You know, when you ring a bell, it, you can be ringing it for a variety of reasons. But to just randomly take a ship's bell away, that to me is seen as like an act of desecration, of vandalism. I'll talk more about that here momentarily. But, um, but yes, the... Um, Tom Farnquist, who uh, represented the uh, families who wanted to have the bell be brought up, he was the one that um, oversaw that uh, mission take place. And the Fitzgerald's original bell got restored and can be viewed on display at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Museum in Whitefish Point, Michigan, which is up in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And for those of you who want to know, uh, did the Edmund Fitzgerald sink? I mean, she, she went down in Lake Superior, but did she go down on Lake Superior's United States side or on the Canadian side? Believe it or not, folks, she went down on the Canadian side on the night of November 10th, 1975. And ever since 1995, there has not been another uh, rescue, um, not a rescue, but there's never been another uh, search attempt down to the Fitzgerald. I don't know what else why else anybody would need to go down. After all, there's only three artifacts from the Fitzgerald that are actually, that people can uh, see. One of them is a lifeboat that washed ashore. The other is the bell, which is at uh, Whitefish Point Museum, at the um, Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Museum in Whitefish Point. And then there's another object as well, but only three. So maybe, maybe three objects are better than none. But I do know that every November 10th, the Edmund Fitzgerald's bell at the uh, Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Museum in Whitefish Point, Michigan, the Fitzgerald's bell gets rung 29 times, honoring the, all 29 men whom perished 
on the ship the night of November 10th, 1975. Now, whom will be in charge of coordinating the removal of the Bradley's Bell, along with instituting an exact replica, which has the names of the deceased crewmen? Two men will uh, coordinate this uh, removal of the Bradley's Bell. Their names are John Jansen and John Scholes. They are divers from Minnesota. And their mission is one that aims to bring closure to the families of the deceased crewmen. And as I said earlier, um, removing a ship's bell can often be seen as an act of desecration. However, if the proper channels, that is proper channels or rather consent from the families as well as through the state government are met with um, full unanimous consent, then a bell's removal has greater potential to occur. So we just can't decide one morning or one day, well, you know, yes, we want to uh, keep the, um, the deceased crewman's uh, spirits alive. Let's go retrieve the bell from the ship. We can't do that. We've got to have broad support from the families. If you don't have any support from the families, or let alone from the state, then why even think about attempting it? So Frank Mays attends the Bradley Bell dive and had met John Jansen and John Scholes three years earlier in 2004. Will this mission involve more than one dive to retrieve the Bradley's Bell? Yes, uh, the first dive involves cutting off the ship's bell. Okay. Another dive would involve uh, work to assemble a ship's stanchion. And that's spelled S-T-A-N-C-H-I-O-N. I had never known what a stanchion was, so I felt it was necessary to look that up. And what a ship's stanchion refers to is its vertical poles that um, that are um, that pertain to um, the boat's deck. These vertical poles help keep people safe. In other words, without these vertical poles, then how can what is then how can what is to be done underground in terms of installing a new bell go safe without anything bad happening? So it's more than just taking a bell off a ship, folks. You've got to have equipment to keep the people who are going down below safe as well. Like the Fitzgerald, the Bradley too herself is a gravesite. And yes, divers John Jansen and John Scholes got permission from the state of Michigan to perform the bell removal of the Carl D. Bradley. What did Scholes and Jansen find, or rather I should say discover, on one of their dives down to the Bradley resting site? They saw a lot of things, but let's start out with some 101 stuff here. They saw a shoe sitting on the deck. It's, it's, sad, it's fair to say that um, one of the deceased crewmen uh, probably lost his footing and was thrown overboard by one of the rogue waves as the ship was splitting. 
for some miraculous reason, uh, the ship, I mean, the, the shoe <laughs> still managed to stay on the deck. Perhaps with the um, with everything that was happening so rapidly in a short amount of time, the waves must have taken that object and and um, rammed it somewhere along the um, the deck to where it has stayed intact all the all these years. How about a work light? That was something else that was found with its cord hanging on a hook in the after deck. The after deck being astern, the ship's back. And there were also unbroken light bulbs still intact. Isn't that amazing what you can find when you least expect it with a shipwreck after all these years? Scholes and Jansen made a major discovery in the silt and mud on the Bradley's port side facing the bow. They found the port lifeboat. Both divers concluded that the starboard lifeboat had been launched, or at least there had been an attempt to have launched it, but yet, despite the attempt, uh, sadly, um, a lot of men lost their lives. But it is amazing to think that they found this uh, lifeboat. Is it fair to say that even the bell retrieval process itself had challenges? Sure. The challenges ranged from equipment, torch, battery pack, to extra line, and tanks, all of which had to be sent down to the wreckage site. But each man split up his tasks, making the mission before them easier. So it's probably a good thing that um, Scholes and Jansen, um, John Jansen and John Scholes, went about doing different tasks at the same time. Because if they hadn't, I believe that maybe this would have taken a lot longer to perhaps wondering if their mission could have uh, been achieved. Um, what these two men were really worried about more than anything else is that, you know, they, they had known that the people of Rogers City had endured so much. They, two of the Bradley's ships went down less than a decade. The The Carl D. Bradley sunk in 1958. The Cedarville went down in 1965. This is a city that time, a town that time has forgotten. But prior to August of 2007, both Scholes and Jansen made it a priority to get to know Rogers City's people including the relatives of the deceased crewmen. And they got so acquainted with these people that they really felt as if they were part of a greater uh, family, uh, community network of Rogers City, even though they didn't live there. But I feel that it was the right thing for both uh, Scholes and Jansen to really get acquainted with the community because it's one thing for to, to have had something bad happen, but you've also got to, yes, uh, the, the community has done everything it has been able to in its power to go on with, with their lives, but there still is missing closure. And what kind of closure do you think is needed? For Rogers City's people, nothing more sweeter would be than to have the Bradley Bell 
brought up. This would be a, a long-lasting beacon of light on a city, on a town that has endured so much, but the Bradley Bell itself would serve as a reminder that her um, people, whom perished on the night of uh, November 18, 1958, 33 people, will never be forgotten. So, the mission, obviously, is to bring Bradley's home, the Bradley Bell home, to the Rogers City people, so, Rogers City's people, so that um, they can find some form of uh, closure in their lives. Now, was Frank Mays present, or rather, I should say, up close to where the Bradley Bell itself broke the water's surface for the first time in nearly 49 years? Yes, he watched um, both John Scholes and John Jansen's mission up close from start to finish. Seeing the Bradley Bell up close in person also brought another chapter of closure to Mays' life. Well, if I was in Frank Mays' shoes, I would, I would truly sense that the uh, seeing the Bradley Bell up close in person, and think about it, he had not he had not seen this bell in person. The last time he saw it, folks, was the night the ship went down 49 years earlier. And here it is 49 years later. Yeah, there is definitely a sense of uh, vindication. Not just vindication, but really more so a sense of um, a sense of closure, a sense of uh, relief, knowing that, um, that the men who perished were not forgotten. And that, you know, Frank himself has not been forgotten. And that he still had a reason for living all these years. Because by 2007, he's in his mid to almost late 70s. So he probably did live, he probably lived with himself for a long period of time, wondering, what if I died before the bell was retrieved? Who would go on to tell that story? Would my family, would my extended family do that? Or would someone from a, a Great Lakes Shipwreck uh, Maritime Museum, Historical Museum, carry on that legacy for me? Somebody had to tell the story. And what do you know? 49 years later, he's the only survivor left. Elmer Fleming died 38 years earlier. He's the one that's keeping this light at the end of the tunnel still going. The Carl D. Bradley Bell is located today at the Great Lakes Lore Maritime Museum in Rogers City. Since November of 2008, when the 50th anniversary of the sinking was held, the Bradley's Bell has rung in remembrance honoring the 33 men whom lost their lives on from the night of November 18, 1958. So, um... We're going to now talk um, about Frank Mays. Um, what is there to know about him? Well, let me ask you all this. How old do you think Frank Mays lived to be? Given that he was the Bradley's last uh, living survivor, he lived to the age of 89. Folks, uh, believe it or not, Frank Mays died back on January 7th of this year being 2021. That means, folks, that he outlived the other survivor, Elmer Fleming, by 52 years. 
he had outlived all the other men whom sadly did not survive by 63 years. This was a man whom, um, I've said it before and I'd say it again, this is a man who had a lot of twists and turns in his life. His marriage was not meant to be as a result of the Bradleys and the aftermath of the Bradleys sinking. He did remarry. Um, he lived in a place in Florida called um, Zephyr Hills. He even went on to write two books, one about the Bradley and the other regarding his life, along with everything he had accomplished. One of his sons, uh, being Eric Mays, said that it wasn't until around the time he was close to about 15 that his father had opened up about the Bradley sinking, but he actually opened up more so about it after the submarine expedition back from the 90s. Even uh, before Frank Mays uh, left Michigan to, um, to go to Florida, many in the community who still cared enough about him and didn't rush to quick judgment often would tell their children that, look, do not ask Frank Mays about what happened to the Bradley because this is something that he is still having a very hard time coming to grips with. So obviously it took a long time for Frank Mays to talk about this, not just with friends, even with his family, but just to the greater public in general. I don't, I don't blame him at all for having a hard time not wanting to talk about this for so long because, you know, he was only one of two men to survive out of 30, you know, 33 of his fellow comrades died. And I know he would have given anything in the world for any of those men to have survived. I don't know why just he and I just, I don't know why just Frank and El Mays and Elmer Fleming were the only two that were saved that night. God was looking after the other 33 men, but God is watching over those 33 men. Even if 15 of their uh, bodies were never accounted for, he's watching over them, ensuring that they are no longer suffering that they are resting in eternal peace. God had a plan for Frank Mays. He wanted Frank Mays to live life to his fullest. And that Frank and that is what Frank Mays did. How so? Well, Frank one of Frank Mays's accomplishments were most notably with the Peace Corps, and he also visited 46 of the 50 states in the United States. He would go back to Michigan in the summers where he gave speeches to people from all walks of life, from all ages, about the Bradley. He even signed uh, the books that he had written um, to people of all ages about the Brad, not just about the Bradley, but what he had accomplished in his life. This man had a reason for living, and he his reason for living was to allow was to ensure that. That number one, that all the other men whom perished had not been forgotten, but also that all of those men whom perished would have wanted Frank to have been able to have lived his life to the fullest. Yes, you can sit around and feel sorry for yourself. You can sit around and mope and, and wonder what life could have been like had so many other people survived. But somehow, for Frank Mays, he knew that he still had a purpose in this life. 
and here he still lived, and here he lived to the age of 89. I would say for, I would say that that truly was a life well worth living. I would have liked to have met Frank Mays. Uh, as a matter of fact, not long ago, right before I uh, began this uh, podcast series, I looked him up. I just wanted to know for myself. You know, yes, the majority of these men aboard the Bradley were of young age. So I wanted to know just how exactly how old Frank Mays was. He was in his late 20s. And my jaw dropped when I read online that he actually had passed away this year. To think that the Bradley's last living survivor died just this year. You know, it was 12 years ago that the Titanic's last living survivor died, being Melvina Dean. So, when the last survivor of a terrible shipwreck passes away, it's almost like a part of history is slipping away, too. Is it fair to say that Frank Mays passed away on good terms, in terms of living the life that, that he uh, was able to, that he rightfully deserved to have? Yes, despite all the twists and turns. He came out. He came out really good. Is it fair to say that he deserved to have the right to be able to tell his story to everyone who, who he felt deserved to know? Yes, but with time, that he prevailed. Don't, is it fair to say that we all should have time on our side? Yes, but it's up to us as individuals as to how we choose to make the most of our time. We can have time all we want, but if we don't, but if we squander it away, then we're going to look back with regrets and said and, and say to ourselves, "Gee, we should have done something about this when we had the opportunity to have done so." Well, Frank Mays obviously was not one of those men who um, who squandered his time. He had a reason for living. I've said it already. I'd say it again. I'm just very thankful that he uh, was able to tell his story to those who, who needed to know, those who needed to know about the wreckage of a ship that held so many records for years, was the um, flagship of the Bradley fleet. Yes, Roger City saw its share of triumphs. It saw, it saw its share of tragedy twice in a seven-year span with the loss of the Bradley and the Cedarville. Rogers City rebounded over time. And now with this, uh, with the Bradley Bell at the Great Lakes Lore Maritime Museum, Rogers City's people can now have closure themselves and know that going forward, even more so now that 33 men's lives will never be forgotten. Although November 18, 1958 was a day that lived in infamy for Rogers City's people, but now that the Bradley Bell is on display, a beacon of light shines on forever, knowing 33 men aren't forgotten, but ensuring Rogers City her, Rogers City's but ensuring Rogers City herself would never be forgotten as well. In other words, she would never have to always be referred to or be portrayed as 
as, as the outsiders would often say, is the town that time forgot. I don't believe that Rogers City has been forgotten. I don't believe any city or town has been forgotten, but it's up to the people in terms of how they wish to be, in terms of how they choose to overcome um, tragedy. And the people of Rogers City have overcome their tragedies. It may not be the same as Chicago or Detroit or Philadelphia, but Rogers City has a unique story to tell. But her story is one that, yes, involved triumph, tragedy, and closure to a period of time when it seemed as though the world had come to an end for the town. Well, thank you for uh, listening as always. Uh, you guys are great listeners. This has been a wonderful series. And um, let's always remember that the Great Lakes are more than just um, for recreational use. Uh, while, yes, there have been many shipwrecks on these waters, the ships are still out there. And the people who navigate the waters of the, of the Great Lakes, they must not be forgotten. They, too, have a purpose in life. So uh, thank you again, as always, and for those of you who want to, who were just recently new to my podcasts, uh, check out uh, the podcast I did last year um, from uh, Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Who knows, somewhere else down the road we could be doing something else that uh, pertains to Great Lakes shipwrecks. But when I'm on the air again next, we will be into a new uh, book series. So continue to fasten your seatbelts, because uh, the journey and the dream never dies. Thank you, and stay safe, and God bless to all of you who have been faithfully listening to my podcasts. Wherever you all may live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, thank you again very much. <laughs>